This is your Field is Our Office. I'm field agronomist for South Central Minnesota, Jay Zilski, and with me, as always, is my neighbor to the south, field agronomist Ashley Storby. Ashley, it's kind of been the last several weeks, kind of been a, a roller coaster of emotions and thoughts towards planning or not planning, and a roller coaster of soil temperatures and, and weather forecasts, hasn't it? Oh, it has. I feel like a little bit of mental whiplash from these last like three weeks. And I thought it was really telling. You mentioned the the changes in range of soil temperature, but you know, I was sitting down at my desk this morning and I had at the end of March printed out the month of April's projected highs and lows. Um, it happened to be for the Ellendale area. So kind of the middle of my area there in Ellendale, Minnesota. And here was something that was really wild. If you looked at May 15th between May 5th or May, shoot, April 15th to April 25th, in those 10 days, there were four of those days where the high that had been projected at the end of March was actually 20 degrees lower. So what we actually had was 20 degrees lower than what we thought we were going to have, at least at the end of March. And then nine of those lows, nine out of those 10 lows were 10 degrees lower than what had been projected at the end of March. So, and we happened to put some corn and soybeans in the ground right before that, Jay. So that was pretty exciting. And and as you can expect with those far reduced highs and lows, then we had far reduced soil temperatures after that week of, of warm temperatures. We, we plummeted from two inch soil temperatures coming out of Waseca around 68 degrees on that uh, March 15th down to 38 degrees as we got on to April 17th. So, wow, quite the quite the roller coaster, Jay. So, Ashley, just kind of clarification there. You, you said March 15th and, and April uh, 17th. You meant you meant April 15th and April yep, 17th. I did. Exactly. Thanks. Yep. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. No, it is interesting. And, and listeners, it was kind of fun because then Ashley had some corn that went in the ground. So then she sent out some projections based on those anticipated growing degree unit uh, accumulations, projected emergence dates on on corn, and and I looked at those, and uh, um, me being kind of the the competitive person that I am, I think okay, I think I can guess this better than what the GDU forecast has, just based on my experience over the years. And so it, it's going to be interesting to see. So actually yesterday you kind of provided some revised updates on projected emergence dates, and uh, it gave me a certain amount of satisfaction. We'll have to see whether or not I'm, I'm correct on that. But, you know, my experience over the years, it's rare that corn uh, planted in the month of April, regardless of the year, it's rare that it comes out of the ground in anything less than three weeks, and it's somewhere like three, three and a half weeks. But uh, actually, for, for folks that did have corn in the ground in that first window of opportunity there, that was kind of April uh, 13, 14, 15, I, if I remember this right, roughly in that time frame, what were you finding as of yesterday as far as some projections for emergence? Oh, you bet. Okay, so I did update those uh, emergence projections from that that run of planting that we had, and they they changed drastically when you took into consideration the changed forecast. Um, so now we did have a little bit of corn get planted on April twelfth. Um, so that would have been, I believe, that would have been Wednesday, 
And then Thursday being the 13th, we had quite a bit more. And then that Friday on the 14th, there was a little bit of activity remaining too. Um, so if, if we chug along as expected with the projected GDU accumulation and don't have any big changes in the forecast, that corn that went in the ground on April 12th, we'd hope to be seeing that on May 7th. Um, made a big run through the territory the last couple of days, and I was able to hit every county in my my geography because every county in my geography had a little bit of corn in the ground. So I've had a good look at the April 12th through the April um, 14th planting date, and, and I haven't seen anything concerning yet, but I'm, I'm excited to talk to our guests today as well because we we have some perspective from an area that had even a little bit more activity. We, we had in my area, I would guess, if I had to put a number on it, about 2% of the corn went in the ground, but it's hard to peg because you had some some farms that really went for it and then you had some farms that weren't quite ready or decided to sit that window out, Jay. So what have you seen in your area? Well, in my area, Ashley, I would say it was less than 1%. I think probably total of maybe about a thousand acres of corn, a thousand acres of beans went in the ground. If I just had to guess that that window there from the 12th, 13th and 14th, and I had a chance uh, yesterday. So as we're recording this, it's uh, April 26th. So yesterday, uh, I had a chance to walk a couple of fields that were planted in that time frame. And it was very, it's amazing as warm as those days were, what a difference 24 hours can make. And I saw some corn that had been planted on the 12th. And, uh, you know, and I'm pleased to report, and this was on some lighter ground, it was showing about a quarter of an inch of that growth of that radical root. And then uh, right across the field road, um, another field was planted one day later, and you could just barely see that radical root coming out about a sixteenth of an inch. Uh, there. So, you know, you think about it, that's probably what you might expect that corn with those warm soil temperatures at that time to do over a 24 hour period of time. And then um, in the Mankato area, uh, I had a chance to look at a field that was then planted that Friday. So Friday the 14th, before we took that big drop in temperatures, and there were no signs whatsoever as far as um, any any growth on that seed. You could see that the, the corn had, had swollen some. And so I decided, uh, Ashley, because, you know, sometimes there's always the buzz this time of year about chilling injury. And, you know, sometimes chilling injury can occur and then that seed never does anything whatsoever. It doesn't even fire radical root at all. So I did happen to grab 12 of those seeds from that field. And, you know, I, I, I put them in an empty water bottle and, and brought them home and then put them on a damp paper towel, just 10 seeds, and I roll them up and do my little at-home experiment. So I put it over the, the heat duct uh, at home here. And so I'm gonna see, I don't really expect that there's going to be any problem, but I thought it'd be kind of a neat little uh, science project for me to do on my uh, on my own. Jay, and, I've uh, been spending too much time with you. I've got two seat. No, I didn't have 12. I have two in a water bottle sitting on my windowsill. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Great minds think alike, Ashley. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they also, I don't know if you had a chance to follow up any on any beans, and I'll be anxious to hear in just a second when we queue up our guest here, Josh Offner. He's patiently waiting to share his <laughs> observations. But I did also have a chance to walk a field yesterday of some beans that were planted on the 12th of April. 
and they were looking good. And, you know, I all this talk about, you know, beans needing warmer soil temperatures to get started. I had every bit as much, if not more of a uh, root growth on those early planted beans as I did on the corn. So, you know, so things are looking good, both on the corn and bean side. Ashley, do you have a chance to look at any beans as well or not? You know, we had precious little beans going in. I The only beans that I've looked at were planted on uh, that Friday, April 14th, and very little movement from that. But as we would expect with the GDU accumulations that really dropped off then, they would have went into warm soils and then our, our heat turned off after that. So um, no concerns on that. They've swollen, but no radical produced from that. But I think there's a lot more beans to the east, Jay, and there's a lot more corn. So, it, you know, as part of our updates from the field throughout planting, we want to tap into resources around us, especially those that have had a little more planting progress um, than our local area. So, uh, Jay, today our Josh, our guest is Josh Softer out of Zimbroda. And we've had Josh on before, particularly on the topic of tar spot, because as you know, if you've been following tar spot in Minnesota, the far southeast is where we've been looking to to learn about the disease and management and outcomes. So welcome back to this show, Josh. It's good to have you. Yeah, great to be back on and thanks for the invite. Oh, absolutely. Now tell us, you have been busier than Jay and I in terms of field activity, so we're really anxious to learn what you've been seeing in terms of planting progress and field conditions. So tell us what you've been observing in the field, Josh. Yeah, very similar to your early conversation. We uh, kind of fired off on the early side. April 11th was kind of when we had a little bit of activity go on. And then we went through yeah, the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, and then we hit the cool down. Um, you know, corn wise, we probably jammed in eight percent of the corn crop i'm guessing we probably got 20 to twenty-five thousand acres in uh similar to your conversation i've been out and, and just you know poked around a few of these fields again still a small sample size i haven't been in like 50 fields but the two three we've looked at uh everything's looking good to date uh similar to jay the earliest planted stuff we have a, a solid quarter inch sprout maybe a little bit more than that even on the april 11th stuff um, as we get closer to Thursday, Friday that week ahead of the cold, you know, maybe you can just see it starting to go or maybe really no signs of growth yet at all. But no watch outs or concerns at this point. We planted that corn in really awesome conditions. Um, you know, some of that corn, Jay Ashley probably picked up that earliest stuff like 60 to 70 GDUs maybe in that range. And I would say looking at the stuff with the most growth, that's right on on par. And I would assume as we get into next week, you know, maybe like, next Thursday, Friday, I think some of that corn will be being close to poking through potentially if we get some warmer weather. And uh, the soybean size, we do have some beans in, but uh, I guess right or wrong, I haven't went to look at them yet. So I have no report on the beans other than they are in the ground. You know, Josh, I I so appreciate that, especially your last comment. I looked at a lot of fields the last couple of days. And as I got through the first half, I started to think, Maybe I should just stop here because I'm learning the same thing as I go, but I already had in my head that I was going to hit a pretty, pretty substantial sample size, but I could have cut that in half and I think learned the same thing that I, I have learned now. So tell me, Josh, as you think about, you know, how our corn went in the ground, the soil temperatures were warm. You mentioned they were, they were fit from a moisture perspective. And then our, so our temperatures really dropped. They held in. Um, until we got into about Sunday. And then we started seeing those two-inch reports coming in in the low 40s. 
What's your thought on everything you've seen right now looks good. Do you expect to have any negative implications from the temperatures that this seeds endured? Yeah, I would say what I've seen so far, I don't have any major concerns. And this is something we usually have a window that goes through this every year. And I think at times, even though we build some anxiety, I mean, don't get me wrong, I would prefer not to see our corn have, like in our case in the east, we had six, seven inches of snow on top of a lot of this corn, which I would <laughs> prefer in a season we not go through that, don't get me wrong. But on the flip side, if you if you look at you know history, I'm still confident we're going to come through. And and like Jay said, a lot of times when we plant in early April, sometimes those windows can get to three and a half weeks, or in some cases we can get out to 30 days to see emergence. And sometimes I get more concern, you know, really towards right at that emergence. Sometimes when you get these long windows, um, you know, it doesn't take a lot of crust. Sometimes you right before we get there, we'll see that it starts to leaf underground. And I get more concerned when we get these delayed long emergence processes of you know, sometimes if we start to leaf when we got an eighth of an inch of crust up there, I get more concerned about that probably than maybe just a chilling injury side of it that I tend to see we lose more stand because we can't push them through at the very end more so than losing them on the front side of these situations. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Josh, because I think that tends to be my thought as well. In and two, two points along those lines, you know, I was list, uh, visiting with a uh, a farmer yesterday afternoon, and I thought he made an interesting comment, which I think was probably right on the money. He's like, you know, his com- comment was, and, and he wished he had some corn in the ground, but things weren't fit yet. His comment to me was, you know, I, I've rarely seen issues with April planted corn. It seems like we have more issues with May planted corn. And in and his contention was that in May, we typically get more of those intense thunderstorms with those pounding rains that are more likely to crust our soils. And so I thought, you know, and and, and I think he's spot on with that. And, and I think there's that factor. And I think the other thing, Josh, that I, and Ashley, that I always share with folks too, is that, you know, ideally, if a person can work that piece of ground up and let it set 24 hours before they, they go in and plant, it, it's amazing how big of a difference that can make. It seems like that soil tends to cure, so to speak, whereas if they work it up and plant it the same day, a lot of times those are going to be the conditions that we maybe see those crusts, Josh. Is that what you've seen over the years as well? Yeah, if you look at it from a macro level, we've had a lot more stand loss and replant from May planted crusting than what we've had from April cold or chilling or challenges that way. And, and that's why I always whenever you kind of relive this situation, it I think when you look at where we farm here in Minnesota and in the north, it's just, you know, once you're kind of past that insurance date, if you have really fit conditions like we had, I just don't think you should ever pass up on it because, you know, yeah, there might be risks to that day, but the risk tomorrow or the risk May 1st, 5th, 6th, 7th, it might just be a different risk, but your risk of what's your final stand and end result might be the same. And I think if we look at our data, planning date tends to trump a lot of this, probably 95, 98% of the time where I'm pretty aggressive where if it's truly fit and we're in, we're past the date that the insurance says we're good to go. I'm just a believer. You got to make hay on those days and, and just let the less dry it out. And I think if you do that year in, year out over 10, 15 years, you're going to be bushels ahead. You know, it's interesting, uh, Josh and, and Ashley is, as you look at this week now with our current soil conditions or soil temperatures, and then the forecast, 
you know, for those that are really have anxiety about chilling injury, it's actually because of the salt temps we have now, there might actually be a greater risk planning this week than there was two weeks ago. Uh, you know, and, and I think some of the folks I've had conversations with this week, uh, and, and we're just on the borderline of, of things getting fit. Uh, many of the farmers I've been talking to is this week they're looking at maybe working up a field and trying to work the kinks out of the planter. They're not going to go at it full bore um, so that they're ready when we get that next planting window. You know, any, any thoughts about this window compared to the previous one at all, Josh? Yeah, it's going to be the same thing. I, I think if we can get the conditions fit, which we're definitely getting close. We started working ground yesterday. If you were planting last night, it's kind of strange. There's still snow in the ditch and we're planting corn, but <laughs> it's just kind of the way the way it is over here right now where it was so windy. But uh, yeah, I, I'm going to be the same. I mean, if we can truly get it fit, I would take advantage of it. And, and it looks like we're going to have a window of, you know, this afternoon and, and, and probably maybe into the first half of Friday. And you know, if you still look at it percentage-wise, you know, maybe if you guys are pushing hard, they can maybe put 15, 20%. And you always just look at spreading out your risk. And uh, I'm going to probably say if you can get it fit, I'd take advantage of the window and and uh, get done what you can. And we'll just live to fight another day next week when we get through the rain and the, the cool off this weekend. You know, I think our progress is going to be similar as you move to the west along I-35 there, west from you, Josh. Um We've we've trended to be moving a little bit more quickly than you, Jay, with how we've been receiving moisture here this spring. So we had a, a little bit of tillage activity yesterday, but it was real pick and choose based on field fitness. In some areas, there just wasn't an option. Um, but we have a couple plots that will get planted today and, and some farms that this will be the first time they bring the planter out. So they'll have a slow day, which I'm kind of excited about. You mentioned spreading out your risk. We had... Some take advantage of this 12th through the 14th window that we've talked about, and now we'll have some take advantage or be able to take advantage of this window here today and tomorrow a little bit, um, and then we'll be out with some moisture. So that might be the silver lining of this, guys, is we're getting we're getting forced um, risk management and and chunking out our planting dates, and and that can benefit us throughout the season, depending on what the season gives us um, as we get into key windows like pollination and our early reproductive stages. So there's a silver lining for you, Jay. <laughs> there you go, Ashley. No, I think that's I think that's very interesting. And I think, you know, before we before we maybe move on, I think one of the things that, you know, I was reminded of yesterday as I was was digging around is, you know, in 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 the rush to get things in the ground, it at times folks maybe forget some of the basics and you know one of those being one of those being planning depth and and josh why don't you share your thoughts on on planning depth optimum planning depth on on both corn and in soybeans unless uh, we overlook that as far as being one of the important things i think is as we go into planning every year that sometimes folks overlook yeah it's a good question and i'm very simple on that i'm i'm not going to probably overanalyze that. I, I think if you look at, you know, the situation we're in today or what I would call, you know, normal good conditions, you know, the corn, I, I'm just a big two inch guy, just, just set it there. And when I'm out with guys and we're setting it, uh, yeah, I'm just a person, you know, Hey, if, if we're right at two inches, great. If we're at two and a quarter, I'm probably not going to change it because I don't want to be shallower than that. But, um, 
that's just kind of where I like to put it in the beans. I'm usually an inch and a quarter person. But with that said, I think the only time I make adjustments to that are, you know, I'd say, Jay, maybe every, you know, maybe every three to five springs, we might get a stretch where it just gets really, really dry. You know, maybe that's towards the tail end of planting season or we get going that there are situations that I may go a little deeper to make sure we're setting the seed in moisture. But that's really the only time in most of our conditions here in Southeast Minnesota that I'm going to make an adjustment. And uh, I can remember a, a few years back, we got really dry, especially in Southeast. And we made some situations, adjustments where we put corn down to two and a half and maybe in the beans down to two, just to ensure we were in moisture. But that's the only rare occasion that I'm going to make that adjustment is if we just get overly dry. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that that there seems to be some consensus there. You know, agronomists, you know, they out you, you never know what you're going to get from agronomists. They have a difference <laughs> of opinions all the time. Um, but you know, that's kind of what my thoughts always been is that always my, my rule always is you know plant to two unless you're into goo, uh, you know, kind of some of those sticky soils, and and then you got to ask yourself, well, then really should you even be planting if that's the case? But I think you know one of the things that I found over the years especially with their earlier planting, if we start to slam that seed, by, by God, we're going to go to two inches come hell or high water, and we slam it into some sticky, gooey soils. Those are the soils that take the longest to warm up. You have that, and you actually have maybe a little bit of physical restriction to both the growth of the coleoptile and that radical root if you put it down into those situations. So, you know, Josh and, and Ashley, I've always, I always tend to think that most farmers – tend to overestimate what their planting depth typically is because mm. they don't account for some of that loose fluffy stuff on top and uh you know on on, on the soybean side of things you know I'm, i i i tend to agree josh i'm about inch and a quarter maybe inch and a half i have seen some beans uh that make me a little bit nervous that are two you know two and a half inches in the ground and and uh, Gosh, at least on our soils around here, just that risk of crusting is such that that always makes me a little bit um, antsy. Um, Ashley, any any thoughts you have with regard to, you know, some of those planting depth uh, recommendations and things you've seen? Well, I think two two thoughts come to mind for me. One is the silver lining of these slower days. If let's say a farm has an opportunity to if they're doing tillage, they got that done yesterday and they can have a slow day with the planter. That's that's nice that you can spend some time really fine tuning. Check behind each row um, for uniformity of seeding depth. And I like that two inches um, or a little bit more on corn just to accommodate for that settling. Um, the inch and three quarter to two on soybeans, comfortable with that. Um, but the other thing I would comment, and I know you guys have experienced this as well, but it's just burned in my mind is I've I've had way more problems with shallow planted corn than I ever have deep planted corn. Um, and and that's that really inspires me to if I'm airing one way or another, I'm airing a little deeper, Jay. Yeah, 100%, uh, Ashley, I would I would agree with that, too. It, it seems like with that shallower planting, whether, you know, two things, there's that inclination if it's cold for people to shallow up, which is actually it, it's it's counterintuitive. It would seem to make sense. And yet reality is counterintuitive to that because the shallower you go, the more that seeds exposed to those more extreme fluctuations in temperature in a cold year. And then also, uh, if you're on a shallow side, just that seed to soil contact, you know, whether it be dry conditions or heavier residue um, and, and, the, and those kind of things as well. So 
Uh, you know, moving moving beyond in a kind of current situation here, Josh. In the past, you and I have had some discussions about planner setups, systems for fertility, and in and placing fungus aside um, at planning time. And you know, I know right now there isn't anything a person can really do to change. We're on the cusp of you know planning in 2023. But I know you've shared some interesting thoughts and insights with me about you know, as as you're contacted by farmers in your area about how they should be set up to position some some liquid starters or fungicides on the planters. Why don't, why don't you share with our listeners some of your thoughts with regard to that in, in your reasoning? Yeah, it's a great question, Jay, and something that, you know, more maybe looking at the trends of, of what we're seeing and maybe a little context of why we're seeing it. And I think, Jay, for, for you and I that have maybe You've seen a few more revolutions in in the egg cycle than I have, but I, I think the one thing it's always interesting when you look back how some things that we used to do that fade out it always comes full circle. And I think for many reasons, you know, the big change we're seeing is, you know, we really went to heavy infurrow starter uh, away from two by two. We've had this conversation, and now we're kind of having a a really big transition. Granted, we're not going back to dry two by two, but we're seeing a lot of two by zero or two by two, or in some cases, two by two by two, where we're going both sides of seeds come back in, then also going back to higher volume. And I think number one, I think the one thing that we've seen is that, you know, Jay, when you do look at a pop-up starter and you're maybe anywhere from two to five gallons, it's not a huge nutrient load. However, we do see a nice response to maybe early growth, especially through the the V2, V3 stage and getting that going. And and I, I would say in a lot of cases, if you got good fertility, it's not a big yield bump, but you might see a little drier grain in the fall just by getting that crop off to a good start. But I think what we've really found is we're really trying to push yields is that if we can do a little bit more nitrogen and sulfur near that and away from residue, we're getting maybe a little bang for our buck. And so we're seeing a lot of, you know, two by zeros or two by twos come back higher volume, maybe anywhere from 10 to 20 gallons. Uh, which has been unique to see. And we're also seeing really great results from that. And I think the big advantage there, Jay, that I like is we can put a pretty high nitrogen load and keep it off a of residue, right? I mean, it's kind of, that's kind of going right into the soil. We're keeping off a of residue where you think, you know, where I'm at, we're a lot of urea, you know, over the top, not that that doesn't work good, but it's a great way to diversify our nitrogen and sulfur applications. But then you pair that into all the new products coming to market, like inferior fungicides and other things. And I think we've learned fast, Jay, that if we're going to have these products available, we can't put everything by the seed. So whether that be going two by two or two by zero, or even maybe using some of the furrow jet things where we're shooting that more into the sidewall versus on the seed. It's been really fun to see that stuff come to market. But uh, but ultimately, a lot of changes going on. I mean, it seems to be the biggest thing on planners. Just what does that look like? And, you know, the biggest thing is I think in today's world, I think you do got to have the option to put some higher loads of a product or other placement opportunities and just infer otherwise you're kind of putting yourself in a box that you can't utilize some of these new technologies that we're seeing some value to so josh what you're saying then is is ideally you'd be like you'd like to be in a situation where you had the opportunity both to position something in furrow and on on top or off to the side yeah. on, on the same planner unit is that what i'm hearing you say yeah, in a perfect world, I love the opportunity to do both. Now, don't get me wrong, that gets to be a, a new level of complexity, right? You have two pumps, two rates, separate tanks, and you do open the window of, you know, I always look at unforced errors, right? You got to be very focused of which tank has what starter, because obviously what's going two by two, you likely don't want in furrow. So there's some <laughs> things 
you got to safeguard yourself on. But in today's world also, Jay, if you had to say, hey, you can only pick one, I'm going to probably go off the seat if I had to pick one today. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Well, that that is really interesting. And it, it's so fun to see as we've been out and about visiting with customers and, and seeing guys get started planting that there was there was a lull in delivery of new planters or planters that, that guys were trying to get a hold of. And and more of those have hit in my area this year. So I'm I'm happy to see new configurations behind the planter and the guys able to put more stuff on in that planter pass. Um, so that that'll be something interesting to see as we go, how we utilize those tools from a fertility perspective, but going forward into the growing season this year, um, Josh, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about tar spot because we have made a habit of every time you come on, we get a little bit of information about tar spot. So why stop now? Um, so Jay has dubbed you the tar spot king on the pioneer team in Minnesota. So congratulations on your new title. Can you give us three or four of your top management tips for tar spot as we're looking into this growing season. I appreciate I have a new title and uh, hopefully in time. <laughs> you have just been show. crowned. You've just been it's crowned, Josh. Crowned. It's, it's a big honor, but uh, no, obviously um, spent a lot of time in the winter traveling around Minnesota and, and, and Wisconsin and, and talking about tar spot and best management practices. And, and, and really at this stage of the game, we still got a little bit of time, but you know, we talked a lot about how important hybrid selection is. And I think if you look at, a lot of the work we did a year ago, whether it be UAV stuff, yield stuff, we really saw that, you know, starting with a good hybrid is the foundation. And if you don't start strong, it can get really challenging to manage this disease. And in some cases, you can't fungicide your way out of it if things really ramp up and conditions are favorable for tar spot. So the one thing is I'm talking to producers now, I mean, most of us have our seed selections done and and obviously tar spot's been front and center, but you know, the one thing if I'm doing a little micromanagement on placement, especially over here in Southeast where we have a lot of hills and trees, I'm just really working with growers say, hey, you know, some of these farms that are hard to get fungicide on, right? Because we're we're surrounded by trees or it's steep, you know, we're maybe not gonna get good aerial coverage or get a ground rig in there. You know, maybe that's where we gotta look at, hey, that's where we gotta put our, our best of the best tar spot products, right? You know, where's our six and seven scores on the Pioneer scale? You know, just so that we got an extra insurance policy there where we know we're maybe not going to get the fungicide application we we may get on other acres. And that also might be a situation where we do look at an inferral product like Zyway as another layer of defense where we're not going to be maybe be able to get as much foliar fungicide on just to not to say that's going to be a cure all, but it is a line of defense. So we think there's some value there uh, down the stretch as well. But those are the little things. And obviously, the other thing on tar spot, just be having those fungicide application conversations with your supplier. You know, I, I think in some cases, you know, we talk a lot about what are the best fungicides, but in this case, even at this time of the year, it's probably getting more about what's still available and making sure we're selecting the best of what's available. But I think having a plan in place for fungicide, regardless whether you pull the trigger or not, it's going to be important because I do think fungicide, fungicide availability could be tight this summer, especially if we get ramped up and get get some tar spot coming on early and we ramp up, I think you're going to want to have a game plan in place now. Josh, I like the, uh, I like your, uh, your line and well, it's not a line. It's true. It's uh, I, I like to, to quote you this winter as I had meetings, the, the fact that you can't fungicide your way uh, out of a poor hybrid uh, for tar spot. I thought that was a, that's an excellent point. And then you make, comment about you know as far as 
fungicide availability there could potentially be an issue here this year. And then, you know, my understanding as well, when I've had a chance to listen to you talk other times and in other agronomists as well, just talking about with multiple modes of, of action as far as a, uh, as far as that fungicide so selection, at, at least two, if not two or three modes of, of action, as far as that fungicide for managing tar spot too. Absolutely. So, uh, Josh is okay. We're kind of entering the home stretch here, but uh, uh, I happened to miss out on a call we had with our Pioneer team the other day as I was out of town. But uh, I understand there's uh, been a little bit of a winter kill alfalfa uh, in your area. Maybe you can provide an update. I'm actually, after we wrap up the recording this podcast, I'm going to head out and take a look at some alfalfa myself. So I'm curious what you've been seeing as far as alfalfa survival this past winter. And has it been outright winter kill or has it been heaving? Uh, tell us what you've been seeing in Southeast. Yeah, I'm going to look at some more right after the the show here today as well, Jay. So we'll be doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it. Um, <clears throat> if you do look back at the winter, um, you know, the conditions, I was concerned about it even kind of just the really the way December, early January was, and then the way late February, March was. And, uh, you know, Jay, I was down at Eagle Bluff in Lanesboro with my daughter in March, and we were out on a hike, and I was walking some CRP. And as I was walking through, looking for some animal sign we were doing, it, I couldn't get over how much ice was on the ground. And I remember I looked at another dad, and that that's an agriculture, and I said, boy, if the alfalfa fields look like this, I said, we're going to have some issues. And so when we do look at what's going on, I, I think a lot of our challenges is coming around icing and heaving. Um, in some cases, you know, the heaving side of it, which likely took place coming out of winter, um, you know, heaving is something unique when you see it, where it literally either pushes the crowns completely out of the ground and exposes the taproot, or in some cases, you can't actually push it and they'll break them. But that's probably been, I think in some cases, some people are chalking it up to straight up winter kill. But if you really investigate this, these plants, I think our biggest issue is heaving and then paired with some icing where we just created some pockets of these fields that were completely anaerobic. And when you ice, you build lactic acid. And when that builds up, we just, the, the plants themselves just can't survive that anaerobic condition. But those appear to be the biggest two factors. And and one thing, if you ever, if you're walking alfalfa on heaving, if that crown is loose in the ground and you can just shape, move it around, that's obviously heaving. Maybe it's not pushed out of the ground, but that's a dead tell sign that that heaving was your culprit there. But those are biggest two culprits. I would say, you know, if 10 is coming out of winter the best, I think the alfalfa is coming out of winter as a five to six at best would be my guess. And uh, mm -hmm. definitely keep doing scouting. But at this stage of the game, after that warm weather, Jay, a couple weeks ago, it's pretty black and white what you're going to have or not have at this point in the game. It's interesting to hear those thoughts, Josh, because I, I, over the years, I think of so many times myself and other agronomists in, in, in reference to winter kill of alfalfa, a lot of times they'll say, well, really, it's actually spring kill where alfalfa breaks dormancy and then we have some issues. Well, as cold as it was as long, we didn't have a spring kill. Uh, it, it appears it was it was earlier. It was earlier on, as he said. And I I I thought it was interesting when you, you I, I was jotting down here. You, you were referring to the months of December, January, February, and March. So so really pretty much the bulk of the winter then. Oh, yeah, it, it just <laughs> there wasn't was some challenging conditions. There was there. challenging conditions, and um, yeah, it's just unfortunate. You know, we did have 
it wasn't the coldest winter ever. And I, I sometimes say, sometimes the warmer winters, I, I think, are almost tougher on alfalfa than the really cold ones. And don't get me wrong, the really bad, bad cold can get you. But when you when you have those open thaws and, and winter rain is just not your friend. And I think winter rain was our biggest culprit this year, it, in my opinion. It And that's interesting, Josh, because the number of times I had conversations with grain farmers over in my geography, and the comment was back in December and I think even January saying, well, you know, if you think of the concerns we had going into the winter as far as how dry soils were and that we usually don't recharge soils in, in the winter and, and how hard the ground was last fall. And we're saying, well, we couldn't ask for better weather as far as this freezing and thawing and some of this rain and the frost not going down so deep. But yeah, and that might have been good for the grain farmer in his field conditions. But really, it, from what you're telling me, it sounds like it was kind of a curse for the uh, the uh, folks that are raising, trying to raise alfalfa here in uh, southern and southeast Minnesota. Yep, I would agree with that. Well, this has been a really good conversation, guys. I think as I'm looking at the clock here, I should probably hit our key points and then we can take it down the home stretch. How does that sound, Jay? That sounds fantastic. Ashley, I'm eager to hear what you have to, to say. And if I got anything worth adding, I will add it on as far as the key points, but I'm sure you probably can cover it extremely well. Oh, well, let's see. So, well, the big thing that we wanted to talk about today is what's going on with that corn that was planted in some beans in that first planting window, that being uh, April 11th um, in small quantities, a little bit bigger on the 12th, a lot of the 13th, and then a little bit more on the four, 14th. Um, so we've all had eyes on some or all of those planting dates with no concerns at this time from what we have observed. And if you're looking at your own corn here today on April 26th or, or shortly near this time frame, what we're seeing on that April 11th and April 12th is something like a quarter inch radical um, and maybe a little bit of that coleoptile trying to push through, um, but pretty small there. And then as we look at the, thir the 13th and the 14th, then that radical on the 13th, really small, pressing out of that seed. And then on the 14th, really limited progress there. Your bean should be swelled. Um, and then on that early planting date, we did see um, I had a, a sales rep over in southeast um, the southeast side of my territory, north of Austin, looking at some April 13th planted beans with a nice um, radical produced on there. So we've had eyes on this crop. We feel good about it right now. It'll continue to be a planting window of interest for us to learn from. Um, but what I, I like about this in part is that there's a lot of us in there together on this one um, and the weather changed on all of us. So we've we've all made this decision collectively and we'll have a look at it and, and learn something. But so far it looks wonderful. Um, and then as we look at this next planting window here that is beginning today for a part of our area, um, we would continue to place emphasis on those products with above average just emergence if we can. We don't want to move that seeding depth as both Jay and Josh had talked about. We want to stay true to whatever the appropriate seeding depth is for that cropping condition, looking at that around two inches on corn and then inch and three quarter on soybeans. Um, and then as we look into managing of tar spot in particular, we have to talk to Josh about that because he's seen so much of it and we can learn so much from those experiences of those um, as we look to the Southeast. And just reminding us a good hybrid is where we start on disease management for tar spot in particular. And sometimes when you get into planting and you get into the 
the busyness of the season, things can get moved around and and reflect upon then if you have fields like what Josh had talked about that might be hard to get at with a sprayer or an airplane, you want to make sure you're keeping a, a hybrid with above average tolerance in those scenarios. Um, and then if you've if you've got a Zyway option, the inferro, the on planter fungicide, um, not necessarily with the seed um, now as that label's been updated then you'll want that um, that option is a nice option if you can't get a fungicide on it and acknowledging that those decisions are, are really baked at this time as we're getting planters moving today um, and then being in conversation with your suppliers as it applies to um, fungicide availability um, uh, spraying logistics and and having those conversations and again if you've got alfalfa um good time to take a look at it as um josh had mentioned it's going to be pretty black and white the the um, survivability of that stand how that's progressed through the winter now i must say we were lucked out in parts of my area we didn't have as much of that pervasive ice based on our precipitation and i've gotten favorable reports on alfalfa um down by austin um up by blooming prairie so it's it's um you know, variable across the area. So be sure to look at that. Jay, what else do we got? Well, Ashley, I think you summarized it extremely well. And, and really my my main parting comment before I close out the show is, is this, uh, you know, we've got a lot of farmers, at least in my area, majority of you guys haven't turned a wheel yet. Okay. And then this is, this is the, Jay's going to talk you off the edge uh, conversation here. So, okay. It's not late. Okay, it is not late, folks. You know, here we are. It is the 26th of April today. And, you know, if you look at the historical planting data, planting date data that University of Minnesota has projected, you, know, you don't start to see that yield potential start to flat now until we get to about the 10th of May. So we got, we're, we're two weeks out here. The vast majority of you guys are geared up to get that crop in the ground probably in what five to seven days it seems nowadays with be um high speed planters and in such and, and just the, the sheer size of the equipment that's out there so uh, again those of you that don't that still have seed in the bag yet no cause for um a, alarm and you know it's one of those things where it's like we get to that first week of may and people start to push the panic button they start pushed pushing less than ideal planting conditions. And a lot of times that's when I tend to see the most replant calls or some of the calls of soil crusting and such. So those would be kind of my my final comments. We've got lots of time yet um, is, is well in, in just encouraging people to be patient. It sounds like the forecast here for the next few days doesn't sound like particularly heavy rain. So, so that's good news. So uh, as I close out the show, uh, listeners, I just want to remind everyone that you can follow the show now on Twitter. Uh, the show handle there is at YFO Agronomy, or you can follow me personally. My handle is at SeedZeek, where you can see updates from Olivia, the North Mankato planting oak. We didn't even talk about her uh, leaves not quite being the size of squirrel's ears yet. So, you know, no no read to, reason to really panic as far as not getting corn planted in the ground because the oak tree doesn't say it's time yet. Uh, or you can follow Ashley uh, on Twitter. She's at Ashley Storby. And Josh, where can listeners find you before we close out the show here? Yeah, they can find me at, at Josh Schaffner on Twitter. And just to plant my final seed of summary, it, uh, one thing that's exciting about the planning date we talked about, we did get 11 replicated PKP plots, and I think Ashley J. So you think mm -hmm. about that, <clears throat> normally we have a planning date spread. That was a whole bucket, right? <clears throat> we planted, 
We waited two weeks, so stay tuned to Ashley and Jay in June when they summarize what do we get for stands in these planning buckets. Then also stay tuned come fall. We'll take that to yield, but that's going to be a super exciting thing that we we normally don't have this big of a gap, and that's going to be a really fun data set to watch. That is cool, Josh, and I'm glad that you interjected that there. I I apologize for running right to the close without prompting you for any last comments. So I'm glad that you uh, uh, mentioned that. And listeners, you can join Ashley and me on our next uh, podcast, episode number 37, where I think we will continue on with reports and updates from the field, which we will be able to report progress on corn that's been in the ground so far. And you know, if necessary, it needs help coming out of the ground with a rotary hoe or something like that. We will be able to share some of those thoughts and insights with you as well, as far as also sharing some thoughts with regard to planning dates if you haven't yet turned a wheel by then. But I expect in two weeks, we'll be talking about soybean planting and corn planting will be behind us. So thank you for listening. Again, this has been episode 36 of your field is our office. Uh, be safe and stay healthy. <laughs>